Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's serious moments, stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Robert Kellogg was 20 years old when he walked through the gates of Andersonville prison. He and his comrades had been captured during a bloody battle at Plymouth, North Carolina. In the depths of Georgia, they discovered that their hardships were far from over. As we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect, stalwart men, now nothing but mere walking skeletons, covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? Hardened veterans, scarcely strangers to the sting of battle, nevertheless found themselves ill-prepared for the horror and despondency awaiting them inside Civil War prison camps. While they often wrote frankly of the carnage wrought by bullets, smashing limbs and grape shot, tearing ragged holes through advancing lines, Many soldiers described their prisoner of war experiences as a more heinous undertaking altogether. Not every experience behind camp walls was the same, however. Some soldiers fared better in terms of shelter, clothing, rations, and overall treatment by their captors. Others suffered from harsh living conditions, severely cramped living quarters, outbreaks of disease, and sadistic treatment from the guards and commandants. When prisoner exchanges were suspended in 1864, prison camps grew larger and more numerous, overcrowding brutalized camp conditions in many ways. Of the more than 150 prisons established during the war, the following seven examples illustrate the challenges facing the nearly 400,000 men who had been imprisoned by war's end. Salisbury Prison, North Carolina. The Confederacy opened Salisbury Prison, converted from a robustly constructed cotton mill in 1861. In the early months of the camp's existence, the conditions inside Salisbury were quite good, relatively speaking. The 120 or so Union soldiers interned there were fed meager yet adequate rations. Sanitation was passable, Shielding from the elements was provided, and the prisoners were even allowed to play recreational games such as baseball. As the war progressed, the conditions at Salisbury plummeted. 
By October of 1864, the number of Union prisoners inside Salisbury swelled to more than 5,000 men, and within a few more months, that number skyrocketed to more than 10,000. With the increase in men came overcrowding, decreased sanitation, shortages of food, and thus the proliferation of disease, filth, starvation, and death. This is a common thread among camps over the course of the Civil War. Salisbury marks a prime example of the effects that overcrowding had on prison populations, especially given the stark contrast in its camp death rate. In 1861, while the population was quite low, the death rate hovered around 2%. In 1865, when the number of prisoners ballooned to its peak, the death rate exceeded 28%. Alton Federal Prison, Alton, Illinois, which was originally a cr civilian criminal prison, also exhibited the same sort of horrifying conditions brought on by overcrowding. Even though antebellum prison buildings provided some protection from the elements, blistering summers and brutal winters weakened the immune systems of the already malnourished and shabbily clothed rebel prisoners. Communicable diseases such as smallpox and rubella swept through Alton Prison like wildfire, killing hundreds. One smallpox outbreak claimed the lives of over 300 men during the winter of 1862 alone. Of the 11,764 Confederates who entered Alton Federal Prison, no fewer than 1,500 perished as a result of various diseases and ailments. Point Lookout, Maryland Originally constructed to hold political prisoners accused of assisting the Confederacy, Point Lookout was expanded upon and used to hold Confederate soldiers from 1863 onward. Due to its proximity to the Eastern Theater, the camp quickly became dramatically overcrowded. In 1863, September, rebel prisoners totaled 4,000 men. By December of that year, more than 9,000 were imprisoned there. At its peak, over 20,000 Confederate soldiers occupied Point Lookout at any given time, more than double its intended occupancy. By the time the Civil War ended, more than 5,200 prisoners had passed through Point Lookout, with upwards of 4,000 succumbing to various illnesses brought on by overcrowding, bad sanitation, exposure, and soiled water. Human error in the form of overcrowding the camps, a frequent cause of widespread disease, is to blame for many of the deaths at Point Lookout, Alton, and Salisbury. In some instances, however, simple error and ignorance devolved into treachery and malicious intent, culminating in tragic loss of human life. Elmira Prison in New York, which was also known by the prisoners as Helmira, opened in July of 1864. It quickly became infamous for its staggering death rate and unfathomable living conditions due to the Commissary General of Prisoners, Colonel William Hoffman. Colonel Hoffman forced Confederate prisoners to sleep outside in the open while furnishing them with little to no shelter. Prisoners relied on their own ingenuity for constructing drafty and largely inadequate shelters consisting of sticks, blankets, and logs. As a result, the rebels spent their winters shivering and biting cold in their summers in sweltering, pathogen-laden heat. Overcrowding was yet again a major problem. Although Union leadership mandated a ceiling of 4,000 prisoners at Elmira within a month of its opening, that number had swelled to 12,123 men. 
By the time the last prisoners were sent home in September of 1865, close to 3,000 men had perished. With the death rate approaching 25%, Elmira was one of the deadliest Union-operated POW camps of the entire war. Camp Douglas in Illinois. A similar disregard for human life developed at Camp Douglas, also known as the Andersonville of the North. Camp Douglas originally served as a training facility for Illinois regiments, but later was converted to a prison camp. 18,000 Confederates were incarcerated there by the end of the war. Upon inspecting the camp, the U.S. Sanitary Commission reported that the amount of standing water, of unpoliced grounds, of foul sinks, of general disorder, of soil reeking with miasmic accretions, of rotten bones and emptying of camp kettles was enough to drive a sanitarian mad. The barracks were so filthy and infested that the commission claimed nothing but fire can cleanse them. Union camp leadership was largely to blame for the death toll. Commandants purposely cut ration sizes and quality for personal profit, leading to illness, scurvy, and starvation. One prisoner in seven died for a total of 4,200 deaths by 1865. Belle Isle in Virginia. Situated on a 54-acre island within the James River, a stone's throw from the Confederate capital of Richmond, Belle Isle received the ire of northern politicians and poets alike. Lucius Eugene Chittenden, U.S. Treasurer during the Lincoln administration, described the dreadful and horrifying conditions Union soldiers found at Belle Isle. In a semi-state of nudity, laboring under such diseases as chronic diarrhea, scurvy, frostbites, general debility, caused by starvation, neglect, and exposure, many of them had partially lost their reason, forgetting even the date of their capture, and everything connected with their antecedent history. They resemble, in many respects, patients laboring under cretinism. They were filthy in the extreme, covered in vermin. Nearly all were extremely emaciated, so much so that they had to be cared for even like infants. Belle Isle operated from 1862 to 1865. In that time, the number of men packing onto the tiny island grew to more than 30,000 people. The poet Walt Whitman was driven to comment on the shocking living arrangements at Belle Isle after encountering surviving prisoners. Appalled at the measureless torments of the helpless young men, with all their humiliations, hunger, cold, filth, despair, hope utterly given out, and the more and more frequent mental imbecility. No wooden structures were furnished for the prisoners at Belle Isle. If they were lucky, Several men could be crammed into thin canvas tents, but most were forced to construct their own drafty shelters. The lack of substantial and adequate shelter compounded the prisoners' plight on Belle Isle and increased the amount of death and suffering brought on by disease and exposure. Modern estimates placed the total deaths close to 1,000 men. Period assessments varied greatly. Despite the controversial number, Confederates claiming only a few hundred and the Union claiming upwards of 15,000 mortalities, the dreadful conditions federal prisoners faced is unquestionable. Andersonville, or Camp Sumter, in Georgia. In the 14 months of its existence, 45,000 prisoners were received at Andersonville Prison, and of these, nearly 13,000 died. Captain Henry Wirtz, Commandant at Andersonville, 
was executed as a war criminal for not providing adequate supplies and shelter for the prisoners. Oddly enough, he was apparently the only prison camp commandant on either side to have been executed. Modern interpretation of the evidence suggests that he did in fact face real supply shortages. There were simply too many prisoners and not enough food, clothing, medicine, or tents to go around. Limited rations, consisting of cornmeal, beef, and or bacon, resulted in extreme vitamin C deficiencies, which oftentimes led to deadly cases of scurvy. In addition to the high frequency of scurvy, many prisoners endured intense bouts of dysentery, which further weakened their bodies. Prisoners at Andersonville also made matters worse for themselves by relieving themselves where they gathered their drinking water, resulting in widespread out outbreaks of disease and by forming into gangs for the purpose of beating or murdering weaker men for food, supplies, and treasures. One prisoner commenting on the daily death toll in foul conditions proclaimed, I walk around camp every morning looking for acquaintances, and I can see a dozen most any morning laying around dead. A great many are terribly afflicted with diarrhea, and scurvy begins to take hold of some. Now I've mentioned scurvy several times. Scurvy is a disease caused by a deficiency of vitamin C. It's characterized by swollen, bleeding gums and the opening of previously healed wounds. The nature of the deaths and the reasons for them are a continuing source of controversy. While some historians contend that the deaths were chiefly the result of deliberate action or inaction on the part of Captain Wirtz, others posit that they were the result of disease promoted by severe overcrowding, the shortage of food in the Confederate States, and the refusal of Union authorities to reinstate the prisoner exchange are also cited as contributing factors. Despite the controversy, there can be little doubt that Andersonville was the Civil War's most infamous and deadly prison camp. The issues raised by Andersonville were shared by many camps on both sides. Prison camps during the Civil War were potentially more dangerous and more terrifying than the battles themselves. A soldier who survived his ordeal in a camp often bore deep psychological scars and physical maladies that may or may not have healed in time. An estimated 56,000 men died in prison camps over the course of the war, accounting for roughly 10% of the war's total death toll. So, is it any wonder that many soldiers throughout the centuries have attempted and or carried out escape attempts? One in particular involves a notorious and perhaps badly placed Libby Prison in Richmond, Virginia. Libby Prison Escape was an escape from Libby Prison, huh, funny how they named that, a Confederate prison at Richmond, Virginia in February of 1864 that saw over 100 Union prisoners of war escape from captivity. It was one of the most successful prison breaks of the Civil War. Led by Colonel Thomas E. Rose of the 77th Pennsylvania Infantry, the prisoners started tunneling in a rat-infested zone which the Confederate guards were reluctant to enter. The tunnel emerged in a vacant lot beside a warehouse from where the escapees could walk out through the gate without arousing suspicion. Since the prison was believed to be escape-proof, there was less vigilance by the authorities than in other camps, and the alarm was not raised for nearly 17 hours. Over half the prisoners were able to reach Union lines, helped by their familiarity with the terrain after serving in McClellan's Peninsula Campaign of 1862. 
at the outbreak of the Civil War, Luther Libby was running a ship's supply shop, that's a chandler, from the corner of a large warehouse in Richmond. In need of a new prison for captured Union officers, Confederate soldiers gave Libby 48 hours to evacuate his property. The sign over the northwest corner reading L. Libby and Son, Ship Chandlers, was never removed, and consequently the building and prison bore his name. Since the Confederates believed the building was inescapable, aren't they all, the staff considered their job relatively easy. Libby Prison encompassed an entire city block in Richmond. To the north lay Cary Street, connecting the prison area to the rest of the city. On the south side ran the James River. The prison itself stood three stories above the ground with the basement exposed on the riverside. Confederate soldiers whitewashed the outer walls to make lurking prisoners instantly recognizable. The first floor of Libby Prison were, were the offices of the Confederate Guard Unit. Second and third floors were partitioned as inmate holding areas. The basement of the prison was divided into three sections. The western end was the storage cellar. The middle section was a carpenter shop used by civilians. And the eastern end was an abandoned kitchen. But an infestation of rats and constant flooding compelled the Confederates to close it off. The abandoned area became known as Rat Hill. Though most of the prisoners, and guards alike, did what they could to avoid Rat Hill, a handful of Union officers schemed to break in and accomplish that. Once access between the two floors was established, the officers set about for plans to tunnel their way out. The floor of Rat Hill was covered in two feet of straw. This straw was a great help and a blessing for the officers. On one hand, it provided a perfect hiding place for the dirt excavated from the tunnel. Captain I.N. Johnston, who spent more time in Rat Hill than any other Union officer, commented, I have been asked a thousand times how we contrived to hide such a quantity of earth as the digging of a tunnel of that size would dislodge. On the floor, we made a wide and deep opening. In this, the loose dirt was closely packed and then nicely covered with straw. By such means, the Union officers were able to conceal all signs of the tunnel that might tip off civilians and wandering sentries. The straw in Rat Hill also provided a convenient hiding place for workers during the day. One man was chosen to conceal all signs of the tunnel while the digging party scrambled up to the first floor. He would then remain buried in the straw for the remainder of the day until the next relief arrived at dusk. As helpful as the straw might have been, it was the main reason for the nickname Rat Hill. Lieutenant Charles H. Moran, a recaptured officer from Libby, wrote, No tongue can tell how the poor fellow or fellows passed time among the squealing rats, enduring the sickening air, the deathly chill, and the horrible, interminable darkness. Major A.G. Hamilton, a leading founder of the escape party, pointed to the dilemma of the rats. The only difficulties experienced were lack of proper tools and the unpleasant feature of having to hear hundreds of rats squeal all the time while they ran over the diggers almost without a sign of fear. Colonel Thomas Rose, the leader of the escape, addressed the double-edged lack of light in Rat Hill. The profound darkness caused some to become bewildered when they attempted to move about. I sometimes had to feel all over the cellar to gather up the men that were lost. 
Despite the difficulties, the dark, repugnant atmosphere of Rat Hill offered the most effective cover. On rare occasions, guards entered the large basement rooms. This was so uninviting a place that the Confederates made this visit as brief as nominal compliance with their orders permitted. The tunnelers organized into three relief teams with five members each. After 17 days of digging, they succeeded in breaking through a 50-foot vacant lot on the eastern side of the prison, resurfacing beneath a tobacco shed inside the grounds of the nearby Kerr's warehouse. When Colonel Rose finally broke through to the other side, he told his men that the Underground Railroad to God's Country was open. The officers escaped the prison in groups of two and three on the night of February 9th of 1864. Once within the tobacco shed, the men collected inside the walled warehouse yard and simply strolled out the front gate. Union officers meandering through the streets of Richmond late at night might appear to be a leg of the plan doomed to failure. The guards simply did not expect that escape from Libby Prison was possible. The fact that the Libby guards were not looking for signs of escape meant that they were in a position to be more easily deceived. Union Lieutenant Moran described how the sentries were not interested in stopping people outside the bounds of their jurisdiction, provided, of course, that the retreating form was not recognized as a Yankee. The tunnel provided enough distance from the prison to keep the assigned guards indifferent and allow prisoners to slip into the dark streets unchallenged. So effective was this buffer that 109 men escaped the prison without ever being stopped. At one point, Colonel Rose walked straight into the path of an oncoming sentinel. Unflinching, he strode boldly past the guard, unchallenged. Although 17 hours lapsed from the time of the escape till the alarm was raised, not all the former prisoners were able to get back into Union-controlled territory. 59 made it, many of them due to having served with General George B. McClellan in the earlier Peninsula Campaign. 48 were recaptured. Two men, sadly, were drowned while trying to cross the James River. To say that the Libby Prison breakout caused an uproar within the Confederate leadership in Richmond is an understatement. I have a personal interest in Civil War prison camps because there may be evidence that my great-great-grandfather on my father's side, who was a Confederate soldier at Island Number 10 on the Mississippi near New Madrid, Missouri, was taken prisoner and imprisoned at one of two prison camps in Ohio, but then escaped and made it back to Confederate control and was able to rejoin the war effort. Other famous POW escapes. And it's hard to imagine this man as a gun-toting guerrilla fighter. The chubby, brandy-loving, stogie-smoking Winston Churchill that the public admired during World War II in the 1950s, but that role is exactly what got him into a pickle during the Boer War. Churchill went to South Africa as a war correspondent, stringing for two British newspapers. That didn't prevent him from packing heat, a broom-handle Mauser pistol. In November of 1899, Churchill was aboard an armored train carrying 120 British soldiers when the locomotive struck a barricade of stones and a force of several hundred Boers ambushed the train. Leaving his Mauser on the locomotive, Churchill directed the clearing of the tracks under fire and helped tend to the wounded. The Boers soon subdued and captured the Brits, including Churchill. 
but on his second night in a Pretoria prison, he scaled a latrine wall and dropped into a darkened garden and was out. Freedom lay nearly 300 miles away in neutral Portuguese East Africa. Churchill hopped a freight train that first night, bailing out when daylight came. The alarm had been raised and every Afrikaner in the area was looking for an Englishman who speaks through his nose and cannot pronounce the letter S. Churchill fled on foot for two days, sheltered in a friendly Englishman's coal mine for three more, and finally boarded a freight train headed into Portuguese territory. Hidden under bales of wool, he escaped detection by a Boer search party. Once Churchill reached safety in Portuguese East Africa, he immediately issued the 19th century equivalent of a press release about his adventure and thus set aflow the tide of history that would, in another 40 years, make him the most famous Englishman in the world. To give even credit, during World War II, Luftwaffe Hauptmann Franz von Mera was a cocky Messerschmitt BF-109 pilot who played Berlin's PR network like a tin drum. While other pilots had dogs as mascots, Von Wera had a lion cub, and the newspapers loved it. But by far his finest stunt was evading British and Canadian pursuers to become the only German prisoner of the Empire to successfully make it back to his unit. Shot down in September of 1940, during the Battle of Britain, Von Wera slipped away from a group of detainees during an exercise walk a month later and managed to evade British soldiers police, and the home guard for six days before being caught. Two home guardsmen had collared him on the fourth day, but Von Wera had overpowered them and run off. Then he got serious. Von Wera and four other Luftwaffe pilots spent a month digging a tunnel and fled from another prison camp one December night. Von Wera split off on his own by morning and found his way to an RAF base where he claimed to be a Dutch pilot attached to Coastal Command. He had crash-landed his Wellington bomber the night before, he explained, and needed to get back to his station. He was sitting in the cockpit of a hurricane fighter within seconds of lighting off its Merlin engine when caught a second time. Apparently having had enough of the troublesome young German, the British sent him to Canada, figuring an ocean would keep him at bay. Fat chance. Von Wera dove from a window of the train transferring prisoners from Montreal to an Ontario POW camp, fled into the frigid dark, and crossed the ice over St. Lawrence River to Ogdensburg, New York, where he turned himself into police. In early 1941, the United States remained neutral, so the German embassy was able to contest von Wera's extradition back to Canada. After spending several weeks sampling Manhattan nightlife as hero fighter pilot Baron von Wera, he crossed on foot into Mexico with phony documents and made his way via Panama, Peru, Bolivia, Brazil, Spain, and Italy back to Germany, where his insights into sophisticated British prisoner interrogation techniques proved valuable. Here's a, a weird one for you. Felice Benuzzi was an Italian consul stationed in Ethiopia when World War II began. In 1941, the British sent him and hundreds of other expats to a prison camp within sight of 17,057-foot Mount Kenya. There was no way to escape Africa. It was too big, trackless, and alien. 
but escaping the loosely guarded camp was possible, even if only temporarily. Manuzzi, who had grown up mountaineering in the Italian Alps, became obsessed with the idea of climbing that mountain every day as it lurked as a backdrop to his daily tedium. He found two accomplices, and over six months, they slowly collected cold weather gear and food and fashioned ice axes and crampons from camp scrap. We are leaving the camp and reckon to be back within 14 days read the polite letter they left for the liaison officer of the Italian compound on January 24, 1942. They had underestimated their sabbatical just by four days. Reaching the mountain meant first, evading all the Kenyans who would have happily turned them in for a ten shilling reward, then making it through a forest filled with big game that presented a very real risk to the three unarmed men. A hike up the mountain took the three into bitter cold, and the summit attempt was an exercise in technical climbing, using a questionable belaying rope made from prison bed frame springing. Beaten back by a sudden blizzard, the trio failed to make it up to the highest of the three peaks of Mount Kenya, but two of them managed to summit the third highest and there erected an Italian flag. Then Benuzzi and his climbing cohorts did indeed return to the prison camp, where they were sentenced to 28 days of solitary confinement, a sentence commuted to seven days by the British camp commandant, who admired their sporting effort. Benuzzi's memoir about the experience, No Picnic on Mount Kenya, 1953, remains in print and is considered required reading for any serious climber. Here's one from the Vietnam era. Dieter Dingler first honed his survival skills in 1944 at age six when his tiny Black Forest village became a target of U.S. fighter bombers. His mother told him he needed to learn to live in the woods on his own if it came to that. So he did. A penniless Dingler came to America in 1957. Surviving by his wits and charm, he became a citizen. He attended college and was accepted into a Navy flight training program. When he earned his wings, Dingler chose not jets, but the enormous old Douglas A-1 Sky Raider, as it reminded him of the P-47s that had stirred his interest in aviation 20 years earlier. Dingler was already famous in the Naval Aviator clique for having aced all three of the week-long escape and evasion exercises thrown at him during training. Nobody but Dingler ever consistently beat the Marine instructors. He would need all his survival skills after being shot down during his first combat mission in 1966. That's got to be embarrassing. Go through all of this, learn all of this, experience all of this, and then get shot down the first time over. Dingler survived his crash landing in Laos, uninjured, and was briefly captured by the Pathet Lao, but escaped again. Recaptured, he was tortured before being turned over to the North Vietnamese and imprisoned in a remote POW camp in South Vietnam with Army helicopter pilot Dwayne Martin and five Air America crewmen. All seven escaped after seizing the guards' weapons and killing several of them. Dingler and Martin struck out together through as hostile a jungle as existed anywhere. A machete-wielding villager killed Martin but Dingler endured 23 days of eating insects and potentially poisonous vegetation 
before finally managing to signal a passing fellow Sky Raider pilot. The ensuing rescue almost never happened. Those in charge of approving such a multi-plane mission said they had no record of a downed U.S. airman in the area. Dingler is often reported as the only American ever to escape the North Vietnamese. In fact, 33 did, all from camps south of the DMZ, which was the dividing line between North and South Vietnam, which is where Dingler was held, or they escaped from Laos. It is in man's makeup to live free. Is it no wonder that men, imprisoned during wartime, will go to extreme measures to regain their freedom? Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. On Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from The Witching Hour and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, you can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.